Welcome, everybody, to the Scott Ross Show. I'm so honored that you take time to listen to this podcast, and I'm excited about today's episode for you. I'm going to be interviewing a gentleman named Rand Fishkin, who is a really successful guy. He is the founder and CEO of two different technology companies. Uh, Back in 2004, he founded Moz, which is a search engine optimization software company, grew that organization to be more than $40 million in revenue, and has recently launched another company called Spark Toro. So you're going to learn a lot from him about how to develop authentic entrepreneurial relationships and marketing relationships. He's going to talk about a lot of the success he's had, but more importantly, the mistakes he's made and the things he's learned from those mistakes. For those of you who are more on the feeling side of the personality spectrum and the empathetic side of the personality spectrum, he's going to talk specifically about how that affected him as a leader and the things that he's done to uh, be the best leader he can be as an empathetic person. And then something that I think is going to touch a lot of you is he's going to talk at the end about his struggle with anxiety and depression and some of the techniques that he's used uh, to become healthier in that part of his life as well. So there's a lot here. Uh, He's the founder, as I said, of a couple companies. He's also an author of a book called Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. Just a ton of insight coming your way. So with that said, let's listen to Rand. So welcome, Rand, to the Scott Ross Show. I'm so honored to have you with me today and have our audience be able to gain from you know your incredible insights. Um, most people aren't going to be familiar with you, so just to share your background and a little bit of your story with the audience. Sure, absolutely, Scott. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian, at, a, at her small marketing consultancy, uh, just a, a one-woman operation until I joined. And we got into the web design world. Uh, this is back in the early 2000s as everybody was coming online needing websites. Uh, that did not go particularly well. Um, we, we failed every way you can fail as a small business owner and uh, ended up deeply in debt. Uh, but because we had never told my dad that we had any debt and were sort of hiding it from him, we could not declare bankruptcy. We had to, we had to find a way to pay it back. A lot of the loans that we had were personal loans, credit card debt, all that kind of stuff. A thing called SEO dug us out of the hole. Uh, I started a blog called SEO Moz, which then became the company Moz. And uh, that blog became very popular in the field of search engine optimization, getting found organically on Google. Uh, we you know, sort of grew that business to a few people and a few hundred thousand dollars in consulting revenue. And then we launched a software product in 2007 that really took off. We raised some venture capital. I was made CEO at that time. Uh, and for the next seven years, grew that business from you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to 40 million in revenue, uh, annualized, uh, raised some more rounds of funding. Uh, and then I stepped down a couple of years ago and started a new company called Spark Toro, which is in the audience intelligence and market research uh, realm. And, and we actually just launched that product uh, last week. So far, going okay. Pretty not, not auspicious timing. We didn't expect to be launching in the worst economic straits of the last century, but yeah, that's how it goes sometimes. So that is, uh, that is my career. I, I also um, am the author of a book called Lost and Founder, which some folks might be familiar with. Uh, did reasonably well in the business book world 
And uh, I speak at a lot of conferences and events around the world, with the exception of the last three months, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. And I want to get into your book a little bit here, but I want to go back to your dropping out of college and, and, you know, joining your mom. Uh, talk to me about the, uh, analysis you did there. I mean, what's the risk reward cost benefit analysis on, on doing that? Yes. Well, as you know, uh, young men in their late teens, early twenties are very good at cost benefit analysis and that's how they make decisions. (laughs) It's not irrational or emotional, it is entirely based on a logical decision-making process now. Um, (laughs) No, reality is I uh, had a big fight with my dad who stopped paying for uh, college and I paid for my own college for a couple of quarters and then dropped out because I felt that it wasn't really worth the money and I liked working more than I liked going to school. That was the reality of it. I, I don't I don't think I would urge anyone else to follow that path. I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs who say, oh, but but look at your story. You know, it looks so good with, you know, sort of building these companies and having dropped out of school. And yeah, that's that's fine anecdotally. But when I look, and I'm sure you've looked at the stats, right, the, the difference between completing a college degree and not having one is night and day, right? Your, your odds, your statistical odds of having you know, a comfortable life and and a life where you're not sort of scraping for every dollar is just significantly greater if you complete that degree. So I I would recommend to myself not to play those games. Okay. Well, that's interesting. You know, um, it's, 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 uh, I'm loving to get your perspective and, you know, we've had several guests on the show who have had pretty prestigious educations and they've actually said, you know, I don't know that it helped me that much. I think that it maybe hurt me a little bit as far as being an entrepreneur because it made me think kind of inside a box or whatever. So, um, you know, one thing I know that a lot of the people who are trying to get into the entrepreneurial world now that I talk to and coach, they feel maybe inadequate, like, well, I didn't get the right education. And so I do think it's inspiring for people who hear a story like yours, that it is possible at least, uh, without the right education to move into entrepreneurship and, and leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to be fair too, right. Um, I mean, Scott, I had two advantages, you know, you remember what it was like 20 years ago, literally this is what I was doing. I was working at uh, as a receptionist at a, at a desk at a, an arcade, like a gaming arcade, making $4.65 an hour. And with that money, I could pay for my college education, right? <laughs> because, because the University of Washington, right, a public university where I was going, which was a well-rated school at the time was about a tenth the price that it is today. Mm-hmm. So it was possible to work a barely minimum wage job and pay for school. That is not true anymore. That right. hasn't been true since, you know, the Bush administration sort of changed the rules on declaring bankruptcy for student loans. And and I, I want to be fair also to the fact that, you know, 20 years ago and 40 years ago, uh, economic mobility in the United States was far greater than it is today. So, you know, when you say to people like, hey, if you get a college education, you know, you, you can do all these things that um, statistically speaking just gets less and less true every year. Uh, so it's... Yeah, it's, it's tough times out there, right? I think I think folks need both the, you know, every advantage they can get on the educational side and also on the creativity side because um, this this world is getting harder. 
Yeah, no question about it. Now, something that also has stood out to me about your background and, and what I've seen from, you know, just the research that I've done is that you tend to just put out a lot of content that most people would try to keep kind of behind the the veil you know what i mean like seo as an example i mean this is like witchcraft and uh sorcery for most people and uh you know the people who know what they're doing like you kind of hold that stuff close to the vest and you know maybe charge a premium you're you're doing videos and you're putting out content teaching people the average joe how to master that stuff i mean why is that how you approach things what's your attitude in doing that in in those early years um I think a lot of that came from my own personal frustration around the fact that the search engines, you know, at the time, right, it wasn't just Google, who, who, who's sort of the, the monopoly, monopoly uh, dominant player today, but uh, all the search engines were incredibly secretive about how they worked, their practices, uh, what worked and didn't. And not only that, the industry was as well. So in the early, even mid 2000s, uh, you saw a lot of people in the SEO consulting business and, and in-house SEO game who basically said, hey, my knowledge is my, my secret sauce, right? That's my competitive advantage. I don't want to share that with anyone. Um, I got plenty of people who said, Rand, you got to stop writing about this stuff. Mm. You know, I've uh, got old emails. I'd go to conferences and events and get into rooms and people would turn to me and be like, I better not see this on that Moz blog of yours. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I really hated that. Culturally speaking, just kind of, um, I don't know, ethically speaking, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I thought, I thought that the, the right way was to be transparent. I thought that that would create a more uh, competitive, open level playing field where, where, you know, it wasn't the best connected people who would win, but the, uh, the most talented. And, and that was something that I really wanted to see. And I also found, you know, selfishly, that the more I shared about how SEO worked, the more I was open about it, yeah, I'd make a few enemies or people who were upset with me, but I, I would build a huge audience, an audience of people who you know, loved what I was doing, really appreciated it, wanted to contribute, um, felt like there was finally some, a, a source of knowledge for them. And those are the people, those, those early blog readers, those were the people who signed up for our software product those first six months. They're, they're what made it a big success. Right? We had built this audience of perfect customers for the product we launched. And so when we launched, you know, we had this sort of rocket ship success. Well, it seems like it's in alignment with something else I've heard you talk about, which is the difference between, I guess, transactional marketing and more relational marketing, right? Where you see people as, uh, as a person that you want to add value to versus just a transaction. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a wonderful way to live your life, right? It'll help you go to sleep at night. It'll help you wake up and look in the mirror in the morning. But it is also uh, a phenomenal business tactic. And, and especially in a world where you are counting on repeat visits, uh, references, amplification, right? In a world of the internet where social media amplification, uh, web amplification are, are such big portions of how we get business. Uh, basically, every algorithm on the web that is built to send you traffic is designed to look for whether and what people are saying about you out on the web. And so if, if those things are positive and there are many mentions of them, you are going to do better in Facebook's organic ranking for their uh, you know, page content, uh, feed content, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Google, 
uh, YouTube, Reddit, every, every kind of thing you can think of, Yelp's you know, ratings. Uh, so, so there's that aspect and also uh, I think anyone who's been in the software as a service or recurring revenue business recognizes that it is much harder to acquire a new customer than it is to keep an existing customer as a subscriber, right? So, you know, you subscribe to Netflix, Netflix is going to have a much easier job keeping you happy by delivering good content and putting out new shows, recommending good shows to you based on what you've watched previously, putting the right categories in front of you, all that, right? Um, versus uh, trying to go out and find another person to subscribe to Netflix. And so that recurring revenue mindset is really about delighting existing customers so that you can keep getting revenue and hopefully recommendations from them. Definitely. Well, and you know, I can just tell you, uh, it's clear that their strategy is just more cat oriented content. I mean, we've got, you know, Tiger King, we've got don't F with cats. I mean, they're just on a cat roll right now on Netflix. So I don't know what the algorithms are saying there, but uh, it's a, it's very obvious to me what's going on with Netflix right now. I mean, this, this could be right. This could be a personalization thing, Scott. Maybe <laughs> you happen to be very feline affiliated in your viewership. I, I'm not, I have three dogs actually. I'm not, I'm a dog <laughs> person. So, <laughs> But I totally get the point. I agree with you. I mean, it's it's really an age old thing, right? It's it is way cheaper to keep a customer uh, than to go get a new customer. Cost of sale is very very high. I don't care what your business is. Oh, absolutely. And cost of acquisition drops substantially if your references and your word of mouth are excellent. Right. Exactly. And so now we're doing virtual word of mouth, right? That's really what we're doing. It's like the old uh, you know Main Street Square just expanded by you know. 10 orders of magnitude. Oh yeah, I mean the, the degree of connectivity, the ease with which we can do research on any company or product we're thinking about buying, uh, and the active amounts of recommendations that come into us uh, on a daily basis are just you know no comparison from pre-internet era. Sure, so let, in Lost and Founder, uh, you know, you, you do, it's, you know, this painfully honest, as the subtitle says, uh, approach to the startup world or guide. What would you share maybe now you've started two at least major enterprises, there may be another things along the way. What are maybe the two or three biggest takeaways for the average person who's looking at potentially starting something? It, it kind of depends what your goals are. But one of, one of the things that I would say is that I think the um, media and press and sort of um, amplification likely bracket of folks, especially in the technology, web, marketing worlds, um, tend to bias people towards a certain type of thinking around uh, startups and entrepreneurship that I think is both very unhealthy and very unhelpful. Um, and that is, you know, this, this sort of classic path of uh, oh, well, entrepreneurs tend to be uh, young men who, you know, drop out of college and then like build these extraordinary businesses that are worth, you know, billions of dollars, right? Your, your classic sort of Zuckerberg story or, or Larry and Sergey, uh, Bill Gates, right? Those stories, for some reason, stick in the consciousness of entrepreneurs. And the reality is totally different. So for Lost and Founder, I did a bunch of research around what do startups actually look like? And a few things are, are absolutely true. One, uh, most businesses, most 
uh, even in the technology world, most startups are started by people over the age of 40, right? Between 40 and 65 is where most of those uh, businesses, and the older you are when you start that business, the more success you have on average, right? So the, the longer your business tends to last, the better your growth rate, the better your uh, margins, all those kinds of things. Uh, it is also the case that uh, the diversity of your founding team is very well correlated with success. You know, you can see a lot of public companies and private companies talking about getting more women and people of color on their boards, more GLBTQ plus folks. And, and that is both for the reason that it's the right thing to do and also because that is strongly correlated with greater success, uh, at least in the United States for, for startups. And so, you know, that, that is another thing I would urge folks to do. You also, I, th I think you don't need to follow this classic path of raising outside institutional capital. Most people who try and do that are gonna fail. Uh, and there are a lot of alternative forms of funding, right? Uh, Self-funding, friends and family, angel opportunities, uh, uh, Kickstarter, right? Indiegogo, all these crowdfunding opportunities, uh, customer-led funding, uh, even small business administration types of loans. Moz was started initially, right, before we raised venture, it was started on credit cards. That was our, our debt package. Um, and I, I don't necessarily recommend that, but I am saying, right, that there's a, there's a, a, a wide range of, of options to consider. And I worry that too many founders, people who are building companies, focus on how do I raise money from investors as my first goal, rather than, hey, how do I build a business that can get customers who love what we do quickly and affordably? And I think that if you change your goals there, uh, your odds of success go way, way up. When you look at Moz, right, Scott, like if you and I, if you and I are the two owners of Moz, we're thrilled, right? Because that, that company is doing, you know, 50 plus million dollars in revenue, more than, uh, you know, 10, 15% of that is profit. It's doing okay, even through this pandemic, at least the last few months, right? And um, we're probably thrilled. We're like, oh man, this thing's pouring off millions of dollars of cash every year. It grows, maybe not as much as we'd want, but it's still growing. That's a great business. But if you've raised money and you have institutional investors who expect, you know, 10x returns, even 5x returns, how's Moz going to get to a billion dollars, you know, over the next few years? That's, that's going to be really, really hard. And as a result, being an owner of that company, you might, I've kind of written off the stock that I hold in it. And I'm sort of like, well, who knows, maybe someday something will come through, but odds are, you know, probably it's not going to be a venture uh, level success. And... Uh, so I think that expectation setting early on and building a sort of a model for what your business can, uh, can become that is more achievable in the early stages is a way better bet. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the first software company that I co-founded, you know, we were young and didn't have a clue what we were doing. We did a lot of VC and we I mean, I have so many regrets of what I wish someone would have told me from the the deal structures we put together and what that ended up doing in terms of, you know, where we were focusing our, our attention, you know, how we were being measured wasn't really healthy uh, because like you're saying, the expectations from the VCs are different than what your expectation would be if you just tried to start a, a healthy business and organically grow it and be excited about profitability and those things. So, you know, I have a lot of entrepreneurs who they think, man, if they could go raise money, it'd be the biggest thing ever. And I'm trying to tell them, no, it'd probably be a way bigger thing if you could do it without raising a dime, actually. I wish that the press 
and you know the social media world would amplify and congratulate people when they reach profitability the way we amplify and appreciate people when they raise money that I, I think that would be a much healthier thing to celebrate no question about it now are you doing any vc for spark tour i don't know if that's confidential i was just curious if that was something uh so we um i can i can send you the blog post but we did a very unique round of funding uh it was angels individual angel investors uh, not institutionally structured. So, so we are an LLC that uh, basically raised 1.3 million from about 36 people, putting in between 25k and 100k each. Uh, and our plan is actually we have Casey and I, my co-founder and I, have our salaries sort of fixed to a you know decent but but relatively low level for sort of Seattle software engineers, uh, and we will. Uh, we can't raise our salaries until we pay back that 1.3 million in dividends, right, in profits from SparkToro, at which point everybody gets to participate pro rata in the profits that the company might generate. Uh, any year that we generate profits, we can choose whether to reinvest that or to pay it out. And of course, if the, if the business sells, uh, investors get the greater of either the money they put in or the amount, you know, their percentage ownership uh, from that sale. So, you know, we have a lot of because we structured things in that way, we have a ton of flexibility about how we build and grow this thing. And our investors are very aligned with our growth and success, right? If it looks like SparkToro has a lot of growth opportunity and we want to put money into that, our investors can benefit on the, you know, on the backside when the if and when the company sells. And likewise, if it's a small but profitable business for a long period of time, our investors win again. I'm surprised that we had to innovate to build this model. We uh, worked with an attorney here in Seattle who actually is part of Washington's uh, uh, crowdfunding laws. We open sourced those documents. So a number of other entrepreneurs have actually used our SparkToro docs to raise money for their own ventures, which is kind of cool too. Brilliant, brilliant. I love the model. I love it a lot. I, I, the reason I'd ask is I was just curious, you know, what you see maybe as unique about what's happening in the VC world today versus what it was looking like when you did Moz? Yeah. Uh, I mean, part of the weird thing is I don't know that it's all that different. Uh, I would say over the last three months because of uh, coronavirus and the you know economic downturn, there's obviously you know a lot of freezing on uh, investment activity. A bunch of funds are pulling their existing you know uh, pulling their funds and, and waiting to put money into their existing portfolio to help to help those companies survive and to hopefully you know they want to take advantage of the fact that they can probably put money in at a low rate and own a larger portion of those businesses um which is a little eh, it doesn't feel totally great but um i think one slight shift, well, two maybe, uh, there are certainly a lot more venture funding groups than there were in, say, 2007, uh, even 2012, when we raised our second round. And as, as a result of that, um, there's a lot more opportunities, especially in early stages, to raise money. I think money is a little more geographically diverse, doesn't care as much. When we were raising, when I was trying to raise in 09, 2010, 2011, Folks were telling me basically move your company to the Bay Area or we're not interested. That's largely gone away. Uh, I think COVID actually will accelerate that because the, the trends around remote work and so many technology companies going all remote for the long term, you know, that that's sort of the long term default. There's also a thanks to I think mostly kind of the WeWork 
deal falling apart and a bunch of those big unicorns uh, looking as ugly as they did, that there's some more realism around uh, building a sustainable and profitable model versus exclusively focusing on, on growth rate above everything else, which I think is a little healthier. I'm not sure that pendulum has swung as far as it should, but it's swinging at least in that direction. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Bluehost. If you want to do anything entrepreneurial, you need a website. And the best place to host your website is Bluehost. Bluehost supports more than 2 million websites worldwide. Their bandwidth is unmetered, so you never have to worry about performance. And the biggest reason to go with Bluehost is their support. I use them because they have 24-7 support based in the United States, and they are amazing at solving any issue you will encounter. Bluehost has anytime money-back guarantee that allows customers to cancel whenever they want without penalty. Right now, Bluehost is offering my listeners free domain name for one year. That's worth at least 10 bucks. Free SSL certificate. That's worth at least 65 bucks. And one click WordPress installation for just $3.95 a month. That is less than a dollar a week to get yourself or your business on the web. Go to scottrossonline.com slash bluehost to take advantage of this offer. That's scottrossonline.com slash bluehost. Get online and take yourself to the next level. What do you think? I mean, you've obviously had a lot of successes, but what would you say are maybe the biggest or the couple biggest leadership mistakes you've made that you now know things you wish you knew beginning and can share with our people? One of the biggest ones around is around people, which I think almost everyone would say they learn a ton about people and hiring. And there's, there's a lot of great advice out there. So I, I, I won't try and rehash that. I'll, I'll say instead that for me, it was a little less around understanding other people and a little more around understanding myself, right? Knowing what I am good at and what I'm not, what brings me energy and what saps it from me. I think self-awareness is a superpower for entrepreneurs and founders and leaders. And if you can recognize in yourself things that bring you energy and sap you of energy, things that make you uh, excited and passionate about your work and, and things that drag you down, you will be a better entrepreneur and, and a happier person, which I think is maybe an even more important goal. Um, for me personally, one of the things I identified very late in my career was that I did not enjoy managing large teams. I'm not even really sure that I love managing people in general. Um, I like working with other people who are uh, diligent and self-starters and, and creative and thoughtful. I tend to prioritize smart work over hard work. I don't care how many hours you put in. That's I don't care when you put them in. Um, I don't need to see you at your desk. You don't need to have a desk. Whatever, you know, that, that stuff's not important to me. Um, I do not want to run a large company again with hundreds of employees. That is not, um, not something that brings me energy or happiness. Uh, and, you know, sort of on my broader socioeconomic, you know, political um, sense of the world, I would much rather see lots of smaller companies versus a few big ones. And so I'd much rather participate in building and making successful many small and medium businesses uh, versus, you know, helping the big guys get even more of an advantage than they than they already have. Um, I, I cheer for underdogs. 
tends to be my yeah, amen. Um, my case. I mean, I'm not like into the New York Jets or anything, but I, I do like rooting for, for underdogs generally in the business world. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not, SparkToro, look, I'd love it to be a profitable, fast-growing company, but Casey and I are not really interested in growing to 75, 100, 200 employees. I think if it starts getting to that level, we'll try and find ways to instead make it a more a smaller people organization, but having more reach through automation and technology. Yeah, got it. Well, I, I don't know if this is related to what you're talking about in terms of, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, understanding yourself, learning yourself is so foundational to success. Um, you, you've said that you think that having empathy, being an empath makes leadership harder. Why do, why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it makes... Um, I think it makes success easier, but life harder, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that empathy, right? That, that same ability that lets you feel what other people are feeling means that you will also carry the weight of those feelings. Um, when your employees tell you that they are disappointed in you or in the business or that they are struggling in their personal lives, their professional lives, um, that hits you much harder if you have that empathy than if you don't. And I think that, you know, there are a number of entrepreneurs who I would say are much less empathetic, much less emotional, much less feeling than I am. And plenty of them are very successful. I don't, um, you know, I think that most of us from the outside or those who know him on the inside, right, would say that someone like Mark Zuckerberg, while he is uh, good at predicting behavior is not good at predicting feelings or not not able to uh, feel the same things that other people feel. You know, I think that helps immunize you from a lot of the pain and strife and heartache. So look, it, it works on both sides, but certainly when you are trying to build products, environments, marketing, storytelling uh, to reach your audience, that, that stuff can be incredibly valuable. I agree with you. I mean, you know, I actually, my struggle is the opposite. So hopefully I'm not an Android, but I am more on the, on the task oriented side of the personality spectrum. Right. And so I've, I've had to develop people skills as, as a, you know, very much on purpose. Cause I'm also very introverted by nature. So I'm an introverted task oriented person. My wife, on the other hand, unbelievably extroverted and unbelievably feeling and she has a business as well and and what you're saying is exactly right i mean when somebody makes a complaint or whatever if somebody brings a problem it hits her very very hard and uh i think it makes i think it makes you know decisions like letting people go if they're not the right fit and things of that nature it makes that very very difficult as well and some of those are critical to moving a business forward i guarantee you a huge portion of my audience is nodding their head and they're they're exactly like you are what are some tools or techniques that you've developed to maybe augment or overcome that as an issue yeah i think one of the big ones is uh long-term empathy thinking versus short-term so meaning, for example, layoffs is a perfect ex example of this. Uh, when you, when I let someone go early in my career, I felt like it was the end of the world. I felt like it was a failure, right? On my part or on their part or on both our parts. Um, but in fact, the longer I have been around, the more I've come to realize and come to see through experience that that's not true. Um, that in fact, letting someone go from a job that's not the right fit for them, where they're not 
performing where you're frustrated or they're frustrated uh, is in fact a kindness very often. Um, I, I don't know that that's always the case. I think right now is probably an exceptional time when if you can possibly hold on to your people, hold on to them because it, it's brutal out there. But you know, over the over the previous sort of uh, what is it, twelve-ish years, that that really was not true. Many times I would let someone go, I would feel awful about it, and then I'd find that six months, a year later, they were happier with a new employer who loved them, uh, making progress in their career that they couldn't have made at, at my company. Why, why was I so reticent? and so overwhelmed by guilt for letting that person go. That was, that was a good thing that we did together, right? We tried something out, it didn't work, we said goodbye. Uh, I, think, I think that having that long-term empathy view versus short-term empathy of, gosh, it really sucks to get fired, which it does, right? It feels bad that day, it's gonna feel bad for the next few weeks, and then six months later, two years later, five years later, you might look back and say, oh, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, same thing is applicable with um, customers and product, right? So if you've built a product structured in a certain way and someone comes to you and says, I'm very frustrated with this product because it doesn't do the things that I want it to do or doesn't do them in the way that I want it to do, uh, I think that you can take that as critical feedback that you could improve, improve it for them. But there's sort of these buckets of, oh, this is the kind of thing that will improve it for this person and many other people like them who are our right customers that our product is built for versus, no, wait, we are optimizing toward a customer type or a problem that is not actually in our long-term vision. Let's rethink that. Maybe we should say, you're right. The product doesn't do those things. Our service doesn't do those things. We would recommend someone else because th this is probably not for you. Our goal is this, your goal is this, and that's okay. I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, you know, there's this age old thing of the customer's always right. And I, I see the positive to that adage. However, uh, that's not true. Uh, you know, there's customers that aren't good fits for your business. And so uh, it is a good idea to kind of help them move along. I recently had an encounter with a, a software product that I was looking at acquiring for our company. And we were doing a trial. And I was talking to one of the consultants and I was like, I'm really frustrated that, you know, this is so super difficult compared to this other thing. And they're like, you know, actually, when we look at your stack, we're a terrible fit. <laughs> uh, let's make sure that you get your trial money back and then let's move you on to somebody else. And I was very appreciative of that, actually, of them saying we're not a good fit. Instead of me spending six to months to a year of my life trying to put a square peg in a round hole and realizing we wasted our time bo on both sides. So. And, and more than more likely than not in the future, if someone has the stack that's right for that product and they talk to you, you're going to be more likely to recommend that, that product, right? You're saying, hey, it wasn't right for me, but I bet for you, this is going to work great because, right, as opposed to, oh, I had a terrible, terrible experience, don't use it. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, I see them as having outstanding service level now. I mean, they were very, very, very focused on me getting the result I wanted, even though it was going to mean no money for them, which I think is an extraordinary attitude. I want to talk about one last thing before we kind of bring this in for a landing. And um, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but I know that you've been a little bit open about your struggles with depression and anxiety, and I won't get into the full story now to waste my audience this time, but um, I have a, a connection to that in a big way. And so I was just curious if you could maybe just share um, 
you know, how have you overcome that? And, and let me say this too. I'm aware of a huge portion of our population that this is a problem that doesn't get talked about. And I know for a fact that we we're going to have you know, tons of listeners who are struggling with that and they feel like, well, that means I can't succeed. So just maybe, you know, share your, your experience and how you've overcome your own struggles in that area. So I first off want to be clear. I don't know that anxiety and depression and and mental health are sort of a, a hurdle that one overcomes. I think rather it's kind of a, a force in your life that stays with you you know, throughout your existence. And, and there are worse times and better times. Um, but certainly for me, when I was in uh, the darkest periods of, of my own struggles, I, I, I did have that attitude, right? I, I thought that it, this was a problem I had to overcome and I was failing. Uh, and I think that's a lot of how we um, culturally talk about entrepreneurship and, and just about challenges in general, right? You, there's a problem and winners beat the problem and losers succumb to the problem. Uh, and that is just not how, not how mental health works at all, right? It's a, a part of who you are and how you are, and it is, it's just with you, right? So certainly, you know, if we were talking three months ago, I would have said to you, yeah, you know, Scott, I haven't had um, really episodes uh, for several years now, right? And my, my mental health has been really positive. The last three months, um, look, I think, I think it's true for almost everyone who can feel for other people, right? Is that you read the news, you hear your friends' stories, you have, you know, Geraldine and I, my, my wife and I have um, family in Italy who, who've gotten sick. My wife's family is all from Italy. Um, I lost a cousin in New York to, to coronavirus, right? It's just, it's just brutal. Right. I mean, um, I think yesterday it was, you know, more deaths than the Vietnam War. Just just intense. Like this thing is intense. And of course, it's not just human life. It's also livelihood. And so there have been days um, for for both of us, for for my my wife and I uh, over the last three months that have just hit really hard. Right. Where it's it's tough to answer our email. It's tough to uh, do anything but sit on the couch and and maybe that's okay, right? We are all human. We are all participating in this scary, scary time. We have our frustrations and our fears and our disappointments and, and we have mental health to get through, right? And so um, it's not something you conquer. I think it's something that you build strength around, right? Like a muscle group, right? I, you, I don't go to the gym, but right. If you go to the gym, you have muscle groups that you work out and you have exercises that you do to build strength and flexibility and mobility. And and the same thing is true for your mental health, right? You, you build sort of preparedness and that is through primarily the the biggest one, uh, every, every expert will tell you and every person who's experienced it will tell you is sleep, right? In my darkest days, it was always, I was always struggling with, with sleep and insomnia and trying to get enough of it. Um, feeling like I had to work more to compensate for my poor mental health and having that impact my sleep. Um, and so building healthy habits there, healthy habits around exercise, uh, worrying about my diet and alcohol consumption and all, all those kinds of things. Um, finding habits that made me, that brought me happiness. One of the things that um, I read, this is a number of years ago now, but I read Gretchen Rubin's book, um, The Happiness Project. Yeah, and she she did a really nice job. It's a it's a very personal anecdote story, but um, has a lot of research and data in there as well. 
And uh, I found that hugely helpful because she talked about developing these, these habits that brought her happiness. One of the ones that brings me a lot of happiness, hard right now, but uh, trip planning. I love planning vacations for the future, almost as much as going on them, maybe even more. Yeah, I would, I would urge other people to do the same. Invest in sort of that, you know, that muscle building, uh, sleep, exercise, health. Uh, invest in finding happy, a happiness framework for yourself, habits that you stick to. And, and if you fall down sometimes, that's okay. We all do. Yeah, I love it. And I'm proud of you for, you know, what you've, uh, the disciplines you've been able to create in your life and the fact that you're adding so much value to the world, you know, in spite of uh, the struggles that you've encountered. Thanks, man. Right back at you. Thank you. So one uh, last question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, um, if you could only recommend one book that everyone has to read, what would it be? It's called No Hard Feelings. Uh, I absolutely love it. I think it came out at the end of last year, but um, it's it's a very easy read for a business book, but it is also incredibly powerful. I keep I come back to chapters again and again to some of the uh, the uh, the women who wrote it, Liz Fosslein and uh, Molly Westuffy, uh, do a bunch of illustrations in the book. I don't know; those ideas really stick in my uh, brain and and come out at good times. So, definitely recommend No Hard Feelings. Okay. Love it. Well, um, you know, uh, Rand, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. I know that you added a ton of value to our listeners and I'm just grateful for you. How, how can people, you know, stay connected with you or, you know, follow along with what's going on with SparkToro? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, if you want to give our product a spin, you can just go to sparktoro.com, uh, run some free searches and, and try it out. Uh, and I am most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish, but you can, you're also welcome to email me, Rand at SparkToro.com. Great. Well, thank you again for being on the Scott Ross show. Super appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Scott. Take care. Wow. What, a, what an interview. I want to review some of the key things that I heard from that conversation. Number one, transparency is absolutely key. Even though Rand worked in a pretty secretive field where SEO professionals keep their cards very close to their chest, he didn't follow those rules. He opened up resources to people who followed his blog, and in the process, he earned a lot of trust and increased his customer base. We've talked about in leadership as influence. How do you create influence? You add a lot of value. That's what he did. So sometimes having that openness is the best way to go even if it might seem like you're giving away some of your best tips for free. Number two was you got to see your customers as people. They're not numbers. They're not dollar signs. They're human beings. They're lives. They have hopes. They have dreams. And it may seem simple, but Rand explained how relational marketing instead of transactional marketing is not only better for your business, it just makes you feel better as an entrepreneur. You sleep better at night. It's just a way more genuine way to go. The other thing I thought was interesting was he said, don't follow the textbook. I mean, create your own path. Rand said, much of how we view startups is incorrect from our ideas about raising outside institutional capital to glorifying the young male dropout version of a, of an entrepreneur, you know, throw that book out the window. I mean, most of you aren't going to look like that. And you should know that you have absolutely everything it takes to achieve your dreams. There's lots of paths to profitable business, lots of paths to achieving dreams, lots of paths to making a massive impact in the world. And you shouldn't just look at the biggest names to find your way to that outcome. 
So great episode. Again, I hope this added a lot of value to you. I cannot tell you how much it means to me that you take time to listen to this podcast. I know that you have literally a million options. So just really, really honored. I want to continue to pour value into your life every single week. Um, You can learn more about Rand and his work at scottrossonline.com as well as check out some of the things I'm working on. You can also watch the video from this conversation on my YouTube channel, which will be linked in the show notes. And uh, I can't wait to see you here again next Wednesday with another packed episode. Till then, God bless.